Welcome and thank you for joining us. Here at Calvary Chapel Eldoret, we believe in impacting and changing people's lives through the Bible, which is the only inspired and infallible Word of God. For more information, be sure to check out our website at ccelderet.org. That is ccelderet.org. And here is today's word. Turn to Obadiah, please. Obadiah is what many recall, many call the one of the minor prophets. Uh, there are twelve minor prophets in the Bible in the Old Testament. And then you have those few, what is called major prophets, Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Um, and, uh, yeah. and so you, you got the majors and the minors. The minor prophets are not minor because they're less important than the majors. Uh, it is simply just the length of the book is why we have been calling them minor prophets for so long. Obadiah being the minorest of the minor prophets, uh, though it has a big message. Um, and honestly, you guys probably have learned this in the past, longer messages, sermons, don't make greater messages uh, just because they're longer. Uh, sometimes you can give a very short sermon and, and it'd be better than an hour sermon. And uh, sometimes an hour sermons are necessary. Has anybody ever heard, besides us Americans, the Gettysburg Address? So the Gettysburg Address only was about 15 minutes, one of the most famous speeches of all time. If, besides an American, does anybody know who gave the Gettysburg Address? Anybody? Boy, I thought I'd get this one. Even if you're South African, no? I'm packing my bags and leaving this God-forsaken country right now. No, I'm kidding. Well, you would have heard of the gentleman. His name is Abraham Lincoln. You guys have heard of Abraham Lincoln, right? He gave a 15-minute address that is one of the finest speeches ever delivered in, in human history. Um, Abraham Lincoln was somewhat of a... And so uh, he was this, he was a very kind of analytical, precise man. Um, and he was a lawyer, and Abraham Lincoln, he would, he would labor over a speech. Not for hours, not for days, weeks, and even months to get every word right. He really was a student of oratory. Well, everyone besides you remembers the Gettysburg Address. Excuse me, every American. You guys aren't American, so you're off the hook. But what a lot of people don't know is there was a three-hour sermon before the Gettysburg Address with a very famous minister, and nobody remembers that. I don't even remember, though once upon a time I did the man's name. You don't always need something long to be important. These minor prophets are very, very important, and they pack just as big of a message as 
the major prophets. As I said last week, we don't know exactly who Obadiah is. Um, He didn't feel the need as he was led by the Holy Spirit to um, tell us who he was. Like, you know, you get some, um, you know, people like this, some authors like Moses mentioned through the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he was the most humble man on the earth. (laughs) Um, Some people think that that was very prideful of Moses in writing that. I personally do not. I think Moses was inspired by the Holy Spirit and he was the most humble man on earth. I would say generally and probably most, uh, more than generally, we should never mention to other people how humble we are. Um, But you get guys like uh, Peter, who doesn't really mention a lot about himself in any way in the epistles, yet we get a lot of information about Peter in the Gospels because the Gospels are as much as a historical account as they are a theological account. Uh, understanding that we get to receive today, we get to know Christ, the very representation of God himself in flesh because he is God and he was human. And so you, you get this, Obadiah doesn't mention himself, but he has a prophetic message, as I mentioned last week, that is in line with Jeremiah's message and different parts of Isaiah, mentioning Edom all completely without contradicting contradicting one another with the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Obadiah. The word of God always um, uh, collaborates and and, and never contradicts itself. And so it tells us the story of the Edomites, the very descendants from Esau, the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. This man who was called out of the Ur of Chaldeans, For whatever reason, God chose him in his sovereignty. Um, Abraham was a worshiper, most likely, of the moon god before the real god chose him out from amongst those people, called him out, brought him out, and established a nation with many, many promises. A nation... um, with its fundamental promise, its foundational promise, the very cornerstone who is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come from this nation. That's primary. But there is many more things that would come from the Jewish nation. Um, The very people of God would represent God to the rest of the world. Even in the Old Testament, they were kind of a shadow, a type of the, the real promise that was given to Abraham, that fa- fundamental promise that Jesus Christ would come, well, the nation of Israel is a type of Jesus Christ, the very symbol of Jesus Christ, the very representation of Jesus Christ um, himself, the nation of Israel was in the Old Testament. And so he calls them out, and Isaac uh, be- becomes the son of Abraham this incredible person. Isaac was that son who obeyed his father when God himself called Abraham 
to go on the mountain. Mount Moriah, there's a good case to be made, and I personally believe Mount Moriah is Calvary itself, the very mountain that Jesus Christ died on on the cross. It's just like God to do something like that. And so um, he tells Abraham, take your one and only son and, 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 and go up. And um, he obeys and he goes up. And uh, you, you see this, uh, and it's an amazing story of obedience from the son, of trust of the father. And as the knife goes up, Abraham's told by God, don't do it. I will provide a sacrifice. I will provide. And he did initially provide a lamb, but also he would eventually provide his son, presumably on the very same mountain. And if I know God, well, I could be wrong, but on the very same spot, Jesus was crucified. So I say that to say Isaac had these shining moments, but like the rest of us, Isaac favored Esau. There was uh, Rachel had this rumbling in her womb. She inquired of God and she said, hey, God, what's going on in here? She said, it's not just twins. You have two nations inside your womb and they're already fighting. <laughs> they're already at war. It's, uh, it's just... It's like they intuitively know already that they will be fighting and all of their descendants will be fighting until eventually the Edomites are completely destroyed by God as is the prophecy of Obadiah. And so they come out and Esau, he, his, his name means hairy. He's a very hairy man. He's a man's man. He's a hunter. He likes to be out in the woods and hunt wild game and bring that back to his father and they slaughter and have a good time around the fire eating and drinking and all their pleasantries. So he favors his firstborn, Esau. You really, you know what, we got to be careful, men. Don't, you know, Jacob's back in the tents with the women. He is more if for lack of better words, a mama's boy. Perhaps thin wrist, soft hands, something that is not admirable in a man really at all. I personally think it's odd to shake a man's hand that feels softer than my wife's. Um, you know, my wife works, not that she has man hands, but she works with her hands and you know, you can tell she works. Some of you guys, you got, even if you don't have a job that requires your hands getting rough, go rub them in the rocks so the rest of us don't judge you. And so his father favors him, but the mother remembers the prom, promise of God that Jacob will be the one. And though Jacob may be in the tents learning the culinary arts, he is a man of God. He is a spiritual man. Where Esau 
is not a spiritual man. So in the craftiness, if you will, the cleverness, whatever you want to say, um, the wisdom, wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove, he comes out and he is cooking, preparing a pottage or a porridge. Some believe it's lentils, other believe it's meat because it was this red, you know, and, and, and Edom actually means red to, to mention the very source of um, his kind of splitting off from the inheritance of his father, splitting off from the spiritual blessings of his father, selling his birthright to his younger brother for, um, for either a, a bowl of lentils or a bowl of stew with some meat in it, some red meat. So we got to kind of understand what a birthright is. And for whatever reason, it's not always this case, but God more than not chooses the younger siblings amongst those who are the oldest because there was so much expectancy, blessing, and inheritance given to the firstborn. And in this there was kind of a sense of pride, a sense of entitlement, ownership. God is with me. The whole laws of the land dictate that my father gives me the land, gives me the inheritance, gives me, in their culture, a double portion of everything else that the younger brothers would get. This is possibly the sense of entitlement and inheritance that some scholars are some, you know, those kind of investigating the story, you don't kind of be really a scholar to look into it, speculate on it, that kind of gave this false sense of assurance to Esau, which would be indicative of the Edomites explained to us right here. We read the first few verses, you remember, so I'm still talking about those first nine verses last week. We'll finish the book today. And this is indicative of the, of the Edomites. You've trusted in your fortified city, Petra, and you've trusted in your powerful alliances of other powerful nations. This is possibly coming straight down from what would be hundreds of years later, even today. The Edomites aren't there, but some still worship Esau. Um, and, and still believing in false assurances like their living situation in the, in the case of the Edomites, Petra, and, um, and their wealth and, and the power of military wealth with their alliances, other powerful nations. And it said in the first nine verses that we read last week, this is what they were trusting in. Well, Esau could have been trusting in the physical inheritance of his father. You, what is, what's the birthright? Well, the birthright, technically speaking, is the double portion of land or inheritance from the father. But that's not necessarily what Esau was giving up. Esau being a very carnal man, 
would have not given up so easily um, his inheritance from his father. And even if that was the exact inheritance that Esau would have uh, thought he was giving up in this negotiative process with his younger brother Jacob, like, hey, I'll give you the birthright, even if he was thinking all the land he was going to get and all the possessions he was going to get from Isaac, it's possible he thought, ah, who cares? Dad's never going to do this. I'm not giving this up. Just give it to me. I'll say I'm giving it to you. That's one thought. But also, that's probably not what, what, what was happening. A birthright also, and this is probably what was in Esau's mind, most likely, is this, it's a spiritual blessing from the father. From the, the father's father, which in this case is the, there, there are a few patriarchs, but the patriarch of patriarchs is Abraham. You see, when Abraham was called out, he's worshiping a moon god, and he's called out to worship the real God, and Yahweh reveals himself, his name was Abram. And then God breathed on him, he became Abraham. Is the, Ham is the breath of God, and he becomes a son of God. The blessing, this is probably what's happening. Esau doesn't care about spiritual blessings, and probably doesn't even believe in them, even to this point we get this. We're not, they're not that far removed from the very calling of Abraham. Abraham would have met uh, Esau as a grandfather, passing down the very word of God. We're not talking about some sort of superstitious Account, we're talking about the word of Yahweh, Jesus Christ himself, speaking to Abraham, said, through your seed, through your seed, there will be God made flesh, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Justifier. And this is, this is passed down. This is passed down. We're just talking about two generations. And Esau hears this, and Jacob hears this, and already unbelief has set in to one of these brothers. He's a non-spiritual man. What is he talking about, the Messiah? So what Esau is probably giving up is the very choice that God would choose in which son would bring about this spiritual blessing made flesh, made physical. Not all this religious talk. Because he doesn't seem to be that upset by it. Ah, oh, just give me the food. What's the matter if I'm dead anyways? Give it to me. I care more about that stew than I care about being the very line in which God brings about the Messiah. Let Jacob be the one. You, you be the man of God. I'll be the man that hunts and who owns land. Which, when Jacob deceived, because he knew that 
um, he was the chosen one and he was also very deceptive with his mother, goes in and, and Isaac thinks that it's Esau because he put that fur on. Well, he's very upset by that because now Jacob does get the double inheritance. So what I'm speculating, and, and I think it's informative as speculation, that Esau is really giving up a spiritual blessing while desiring to maintain the physical blessings of his family, the physical inheritance. God rejects such a person. And God accepts those who put spiritual things first. And he continues to communicate to this over and over and over. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Don't even worry about the physical stuff. Yeah, work hard, earn a living, but worry, no. And definitely don't put those things first. By the way, worry is putting those things first. Esau doesn't care about these things. And it's, the very, it's indicative of the very people that he absorbs, the Horites. And, and they become a nation, the Edomites. And they become very powerful. It's uh, south of uh, Israel, modern-day Jordan, where the Edomites became a nation, a very powerful nation. They had three major cities that made up the Edomites' um, empire. Basra, which was a very prominent city of wealth, just tons and tons of wealth. Um, Isaiah 63 speaks of it. Um, you have Timon, which is um, a, another uh, major city of the Edomites, which was um, uh, um, known to be the, like the most knowledgeable, wise city in the world back then. It's like that is like the Greek philosophers, though they would come later. Timon, the Edomites, they have wisdom and knowledge. And that was a major city of the Edomites. And then you have Petra, which is the city mentioned in the Bible, also mentioned here. And this mysterious city that, by the way, the Bible talked about, you guys remember last week, I made a big deal in that 25-minute introduction before we read these first nine verses, that Obadiah's prophecy completely coincides with Jeremiah's prophecy concerning Edom, and, and Jeremiah and Obadiah didn't know each other if Obadiah is the one we speculated is way back amongst the first prophet, Elijah. Now, I know I'm not doing a big preaching on applicational things. This is just Bible talk, so bear with me. And you know that Petra, you guys remember I said how uh, uh, critics of the Bible were also uh, some historians and scholars? They criticize. They say, there's been nobody by the name of Pilate, so the Bible's wrong. And then we covered just a few short years ago. I mean, it wasn't a matter of within 20 years. We've discovered so much about Pilate now through archaeological digs that we know the very reason why nobody has any evidence that he existed up to a few years ago is because the emperor, Tiberius, actually struck his name from the record. And in Rome, it's like, if you strike somebody's name, then you destroy any ends about a person so that their legacy, their name will never live on. 
It's an amazing stuff. Well, by the way, Petra is one of those cities that was not discovered till 1812. And Bible critics long said there's, there's mention of Petra over and over and over and over and over again. And we've never discovered it. How can we not know about this giant city? Well, there's a guy who was a believer of the Bible named Johann Burkhardt in 1812, believer, and knew that Petra had never been discovered. The common world. So he saved all of his money. He wasn't a wealthy man, but he was an explorer. Saved up all of his money, and he moved down to what is modern-day Jordan, and even then was Jordan. And he was looking, he couldn't find this place, but he lived amongst the people. And as he lived amongst the people, Johann Burkhardt discovered that these people still, this little sect of people still worship Esau. And he, being a knowledgeable man, knew that the Edomites um, kind of worshipped after the order of Aaron the priest, who was called by God and Moses. So Aaron being the priest and Esau being the deity of this cult. And his desperate attempt to find Petra said, I want to make a sacrifice to Aaron and Esau. And so this, uh, one of the people in this tribe said, okay, if you want to, come with me. And he takes him to the lost city of Zinj. No, I'm kidding. Lost city of Petra. I mean, wouldn't that be cool to be an explorer back in those days? Centuries and centuries, no Petra. All of a sudden, Johann Burkhardt, he finds it. And this, this guide takes him into the city and he walks an entire mile through this alley. And in this alley, the widest that it ever was was 40 feet wide. And for most of the walk, it was only 12 feet wide, about from here to the end of this. So about half of the stage on that side, on the, on the front. And on the sides of this, 12 foot wide alley walkway is anywhere from a 200 foot cliff to get this a thousand feet tall cliff as he walked through this 12 foot mountain pass and all of a sudden after about a mile of walking through this 12 to 40 foot wide mountain pass with 200 to a thousand foot tall cliffs on the side it opens up into this massive um, rock uh, city and he found the lost city of Petra and he looked and there was tons of engravings and buildings in all of these rocks and so you see here they trust in their forces they said that 20 people could hold off an army of hundreds of thousands just by throwing boulders and, and shooting arrows down on people in this mountain pass. They said, nobody in the world can ever conquer us. Let me reread it. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations saying, arise, 
and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? That's what they were saying in Petra, the capital city of the Edomites. Who will bring us down? Who could ever conquer us in a city like this? No one. Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars from there, I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out. How his hidden treasure Treasures shall be sought after, and the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and pre prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, day says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O team man, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off to slaughter. That's the first part of Obadiah, which there's really two parts, um, the prophetic destruction of the Edomites and the prophetic restoration of the nation of Israel. And the other part, they trusted in their empire. You know what's interesting when you look at something, something like this? The Lord, please consider this. He, he's speaking to a nation. A nation of people who are powerful. They have an army. They have these three major cities, one filled with wealth, the other filled with knowledge, and this other filled with military might so that no Buddy can penetrate these cities, they thought. A million people could dwell. That's a big city, especially back then. They're a nation with wealth, with wisdom, with military power. And God is speaking to them as a nation of people. And how we can become prideful with just a job, a career that makes us a decent living, some sort of intellectual, um, uh, you know, superiority to people who we think are dumber than us. We're not a nation with three cities with wealth, knowledge, and military power, just individuals, and we can become as easily, easily as prideful as the Edomites were. Trusting in physical things, whether it be money, intellect, career. And to see somebody broken and to see them exalt themselves within months. 
months. I, I was a heroin addict. I, uh, for a time, homeless, trying to find a hotel room or a, a friend's couch to stay on. At time, had to, it wasn't a lot, but I slept outside a few times. It's kind of humbling. Uh, and I, go, I, I get born again. I join a program. And because I was, you know, probably one of the better students in the entire program, I became prideful and self-righteous in four months' time after being homeless. That makes no sense, you know? And, you know, through a series of discipleship, getting crushed down by authority, and not crushed down in in a bad way by authority, just recognizing that I got a boss, recognizing that they know more than I do, recognizing that they're better people than I am, it's humbling. But more so than anything, experiencing the presence of Christ should never cause a man to be rude to others to feel superior to others. God hates this sort of attitude. He hates it. And he says he will crush the Edomites. You remember we discussed the Hebrew and Greek word of pride last week. And uh, it, it was interesting that part of the definition was one was to be puffed up and the other was, it was to be inflated like when you inflate a balloon, you notice balloons, they can, you know, float around, especially if they're filled with helium, and they look really cool, but they have no substance. Balloons cannot hold this roof together. And when somebody is prideful, they have no substance and they have no beneficial qualities to the world around them. No beneficial qualities. To be prideful is to think something about yourself that is not true. To be humble is to think things about yourself that are true. Or a way of saying humility is seeing us the way God sees us. That doesn't mean you hate yourself because God loves us. But humility is to, 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 to believe truth about yourself. It's, it's very interesting because there's a lot of false humility. This, these people fortified themselves in Petra and they thought that the world cannot get to them. But here's the deal. Even if the world can't get to them, God can And isn't that proven, what we saw last Sunday morning? Do you guys remember the study? The disciples are hiding out, presumably in the upper room of John Mark, um, the author of the Gospel of Mark, who was probably dictated to some degree by Peter. The upper room where they had the Last Supper, the upper room where Jesus began his upper room discourse, John uh, 13, 14, 15, and 16. They're there hiding. Why are they hiding? Because they're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid they're going to be arrested. Afraid they're going to be persecuted. I guess each one of us have our own false sense of security in our lives. The Edomites, Petra, 
to the disciples, the upper room with a locked door. And yet, Jesus doesn't need to open a door to be in the room with the disciples. He just appears right in their midst. We may be able to outrun human beings, but we can never get away from God. And neither can the Edomites. God judges them severely to the point where they will not exist anymore. Augustine was asked, how do you prove the Bible is true? He said, just look at the Jews. And what Augustine meant was, the Bible promised that the Jews would always remain as a people. They will never be destroyed. Guys, there is not a nation on earth that remains in the Old Testament. And even if there's a people group like Greece, They've been integrated. The people people of Jude, you don't see any uh, Philistines. They don't exist anymore. But the people of God have been preserved by God in the same way that the word of God has been supernaturally preserved by God. The Edomites' prophecy is they will be destroyed and there will never be any Edomites left. And there's not. The rest of the... God God explains why this harsh judgment. He tells us why he's going to wipe them off for the rest of the book. Verse 10, for violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. In that day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. You were against Jerusalem, fighting the very enemy of God. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother and that day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity nor laid hands on their substance in that day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among those who escaped, them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you, just stop there. The day of the Lord upon all nations is near. All nations. That kind of stuff just gets me excited. Listen, guys, there's no Edomites. There's no Edomites. They were a powerful nation. There's no Babylonians. They were a powerful nation. There's no um, Philistines. There's a powerful nation. There will be no other nation except for the people of God. He will destroy every nation. There may be the Kenyan people here and they, you know, to agree, but you won't be Kenyans in heaven. He will destroy the Kenyan government. He will destroy the Chinese government. They can't run from him. Their power cannot stop him. I'm excited. I get angry. I get angry inside. Do you ever get angry? 
These people who think they have so much power. I, I've enjoyed on a, a couple different occasions saying to some Kenyan politicians that you would have no power except it's been given to you by Jesus Christ. The same words that Jesus Christ said to Pilate, you would have And he said to Pilate, you would have no power except it's been given to you from above. Do you know that John's entire gospel, which that's in the book of John, explains to us that Jesus came from above? Jesus is saying to Pilate, you would have no power except I gave it to you. (laughs) And you will see me again, destroying you, coming in the right hand of power. It's, It's a comforting thought to me. For the day of the Lord is upon all nations. It's near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall... You see, Petra is not the Edomites' mountain. It's God's mountain. Your house is not your house. It's God's house. Your phone is not your phone. It's God's phone. So stop looking up bad things on it. So shall all the nations drink, continue. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But this is the final triumph. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance. It's Jerusalem. There shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them. And no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountain of Esau. And the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim, the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captives of the hosts of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. As far as Zerophath, the captives of Jerusalem are in Shiphard shall possess the cities of the south. Then Savior shall come to Mount Zion, the judge, to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. All those things happened, by the way. I could go into the history of all of it. All those things happened, exactly as Obadiah prophesied. Obadiah's prophecies are real. Prophet Awar's prophecies are lies and manipulation. You can never use a prideful man. Prideful woman can never be used by God. Making statements about life, oh, that'll never happen. I've heard it many times. That'll never happen. You don't know. Whew. Are you... I wasn't trying to refer to you, but my brother laughing makes me think of, he told me he'll never lose his job. Told me a few years ago. He also told me he would never come to Africa. What have you said never about? What in your security and false security and pride have you spoken of? I've done it as well many times. You know, I stopped making promises to God a long time ago. Not that I don't make commitments, 
Not that I don't say things, but you ever done that? I'll never do that again, God, never. You do it again? So humiliating, isn't it? I'll never do that again, God. And as five years go down the road, you've done it dozens of times, whether it's the way you speak to a loved one. Be careful of your own ability to perform holiness. You just can't. We can't. This is all that's in the flesh. I've said this before. You can build an entire ministry with completely being consumed by selfish ambition and the desire to have money and rule over people. Be careful where your heart's at. Pride is so deceiving. Be careful how, sh- how we respond to people. Pride is so deceiving. As Chuck said, and listen, I, you know, you, I even doubted this uh, very quote for many years in my young Christian life, and I still have some good points on it, but Chuck would always say, err on the side of grace. It becomes so real to me nowadays, so real. Be humble. Walk humbly before thy God so that we're not judged with some horrible judgment. God hates pride. God hates divisive people who come in and destroy people with their pride. Let's walk humbly. It's great if we have Petra as our dwelling place. By the way, you can visit it. I've never been. I've never even been to Israel. Wouldn't that be cool to walk through the mountain pass? It's still there. (laughs) See a thousand-foot cliff? I mean, there's not... What are you talking about? There's not even a thousand-foot building in Kenya. I don't think. I don't think there's any thousand-foot buildings in Nairobi. I may be wrong. Is there? But those things ain't going to save you. Walk humbly. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the prophecy of Obadiah. We look forward to meeting him and especially you. I pray you'd bless our fellowship now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's teaching. We hope that you've been inspired and blessed. For more teachings and other resources, visit our website at ccelderet.org or call us at 718 496. That is 0718-012-496. See you next time.